I'm Josh. I'm Joe. And this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where, for the month of October, we're browsing our video store shelves to choose some spooky staff picks. And in the last episode, Joe selected Maximum Overdrive. And so, Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you. Why Maximum Overdrive? Well, I wanted to focus on Stephen King somehow because he is my favorite author. That is something I realized during the pandemic especially, that he is my go-to comfort read. And once libraries opened back up, one of my projects was to read at least part of every Stephen King book. I didn't finish you know, the ones. There were some that I don't like, so I don't want to go through the whole thing. But I did accomplish it, so I have read at least part of every Stephen King book. That's a huge feat. He got some lengthy books. I'd read quite a lot of them throughout the years, so I wasn't jamming them all into this. But just on that topic, I guess, because I love lists, I'll throw in my 10 favorite Stephen King books, go from number one to number 10. We have The Gunslinger, Salem's Lot, The Mist, Night Shift, Revival, Don's Macabre, Cycle of the Werewolf, From a Buick 8, The Tommyknockers, and It. Josh, have you read much or any of Stephen King's works? Actually, I can finally claim that I had because it had been so many years. I'd seen all the, you know, obviously a lot of the film adaptations, but it was back in the days when I was doing public transportation where I was actively reading more. And so I not forced myself. I chose to finally dive into the world of Stephen King because I knew... Obviously, he's a huge acclaimed writer for so many years. I just, I had to see the differences between some of these adaptations. And then also just, I wanted to have the Stephen King experience. So the first one that I read, and I'm so glad I read that first because it felt like it was really, I don't want to call it an easy read, but it it went down real smooth, was Misery. I really, really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed a lot of the differences that are very subtle, but I feel like there really are these like nuances and differences in the stories that I almost wish they could capture on film, but somehow it's just like, it's just kind of impossible. And I'd say like a great example of that is, and they tried, but like the second one I read was The Shining. Mm -hmm. And I know they did that made for TV movie adaptation. Oh, with Stay Lover. Yep. And they were yeah. trying to capture the novel closer to them what the Kubrick version was. But even that, it just seemed a little hokey with like the, you know, the hedges moving around and yeah, you know, all is, of that. I mean, that's early CG and it's a TV miniseries budget. So yeah, not all of it looks the best. But the the last one I obviously read was it. Not obviously, but that was the biggest feat for me because I know a lot of people say that that is like a gnarly read, like meaning lengthwise. But that's my experience with Stephen King. Other than that, I also have to give a shout out. I really, really enjoyed his Entertainment Weekly articles when he was like a full-time writer. Yeah, doing the back page, right? Yeah, Uncle Stevie, I think is what he'd always say. Your (laughs) Uncle Stevie. I loved it. So Maximum Overdrive is based on a story in Night Shift called Trucks. I guess the reason I picked this movie particularly is because he did direct it himself and he has a lot of negative reaction towards it. And at the time it was made was at an interesting point in his life as well. So I thought that combined with knowing that your husband had some sort of nightmare of this film in the past. And what's interesting, did you watch the trailer for this film? I think I did before I watch it, but I'm blanking on anything specific. So go ahead and well, tell me it's, what you thought. Well, what's funny are. is that Stephen King puts himself in it, and one of his lines towards the end is, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. That's right. I did see this, because it's just him talking to the camera. Yeah. yeah. And that's funny, because up until that point, the movie's made based on his works. I know he has the issues with The Shining, but like, there's a pretty good track record for his stuff at that point. Yeah. I... And just trying to think, like, so off the top of your head, which other films were out by that point? We have Carrie, Firestarter, Cujo, Dead Zone, Creep Show. you can count. Then, I mean, leading up to Maximum Overdrive, there might have been a few that were less liked a little bit because there was Silver Bullet based on Cycle of the Werewolf. There was Cat's Eye based on some of his shorts and children of the corn had come out by then as well oh i forget i always forget about oh that. and christine so, christine was out by that point too and so. i do have to say honestly i have a soft spot for cat's eye that was a movie yeah. i saw at a young age that actually that whole storyline of the guy having to like crawl all the way around that high rise oh the ledge on the ledge, yeah. le- on yep, the ledge that's, is terrifying that's also from night shift that that's was a- 
probably my number one favorite one out of that. Well, I had a question then too, before we get into more of the logistics. So we're talking about the adaptations, but what are some of your favorites of the film adaptations? Because that's what I'm most familiar with. Well, I mean, I first got into Stephen King because he felt like such a big deal in the 90s with all of the TV miniseries. So I have a fondness for those. They're a little hard to go back to, but I'm still, you know, they're in my heart. There, you know, there was It and Tommyknockers and The Stand. But I guess my favorites are going to be, I mean, the top two, I think, are The Shining and Christine, both of which I'm one of the people who thinks The Shining movie is better than the book. And I think Christine is a far better movie than the book as well. I have a real soft spot for The Dark Half as well that George Romero directed. That's another one that I like better than the book. I'm, I'm very, I don't have that attitude that like every book is better than whatever movie. I think it happens more often than people realize. And I think there's a number of Stephen King ones. He's my favorite author, but I do think that some of the movies end up being better. The Running Man and Lawnmower Man both have nothing to do really with the Stephen King story, but I would rather watch those movies than reread the stories. So those are probably my tops. I mean, my top three, I'll go Shining, Christine, and uh, Dark Half. I'd have to agree. Like, so one of my, I think it's on my top 10 list of favorite horror movies of all time is obviously The Shining. The style of the film, I don't know, is just incredible. And that whole concept, which I've talked to you to death about in other episodes, reiterating us here in Minnesota having to deal with these cabin fever type moments of being indoors during the winter. Like, I just love it. The whole concept, I mean, it belongs to King. So obviously that's his um, vision, but the idea of being in a giant, empty, abandoned hotel in the middle of nowhere in the middle of winter and not being able to do anything and like slowly going crazy, like I 100% believe it. And I don't know, like, I just love it. And I, I always wonder like, what is he so mad about with the Kubrick version? Well, like, what I is think his beef with it? My guess is that he sees a lot of himself in the Jack Torrance character about like dealing with addiction at the time. But I think he's said that he didn't like the casting of Jack Nicholson because because of his reputation. You just kind of figure that he's crazy from the beginning, where in the book it's supposed to be that he is kind of normal and just slowly loses his mind. But my argument against that is that if you read that book, he foreshadows the hell out of all of the later portions. So when you're reading the book, you know he's going crazy too. So I think it's just, I don't know. I mean, he's attached to it, so he can have his opinion. I think it's kind of petty though. My top three is, Probably would be The Shining. I'd say actually Pet Cemetery is probably high up there. The original? Two. Yes, the original yeah. Pet Cemetery. I specifically remember that being one of those late night sleepover VHS movies that scared the hell out of me because at the time I wasn't really allowed to watch horror. And that was one of those ones that I knew nothing about and everything about it terrified me. So, and then I would say, oh, see, it's really tough because. It's not a full movie, but I almost want to say The Raft from Creepshow oh, 2 yeah. is probably number three. If we're we'll just counting it. it's so good. adaptations, because we were just talking about that recently, Joe, and yeah. offline. And I just remember the first time I watched it because I was like, oh, Creepshow 2, I don't know. Is this going to be kind of bad? And I was watching it and there's some stuff that doesn't fare so well. We've talked about that. But then when it got to The Raft, it was like, I am engrossed as hell in this storyline and I want them to live. And again, I don't know, maybe just because I'm picking all these downer (laughs) Stephen King adaptations, but that's another one that's like, it's a bummer and it's a downer, but at the same time, it's funny. And anyone that can incorporate all three of those emotions all in one, it's ridiculous. So yeah. All right. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories. And I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. So for Maximum Overdrive itself, uh, talk about the box office first so you can kind of start getting a sense of how this film did and what the opinion is. So this opens on July 25th, 1986, and it was filmed the July prior, and it is well in the midst of Stephen King being addicted to cocaine. So uh, he's come out and said that he doesn't remember writing Cujo, and I don't think he remembers much of Tommyknockers either. So he had some like pretty rough years of addiction. He gets clean on drugs, like actually just around when this movie's coming out, I think, in that 1986 period. He doesn't get sober from alcohol until the early 90s. I remember Needful Things is the first book that came out or that he wrote after that. So this is this is a rough patch. 
And he didn't write any books in 85. The focus was just on this. And it opens at number seven at the box office. And it makes $7.4 million total. That weekend, I mean, it had a rough time. James Cameron's Aliens was running wild at the top of the box office. But if you're wondering for a second if Stephen King's name being on this film hurt his reputation, you should know that two months later is when the book It came out. So I think he was doing okay. Well, and now that I think about it, not to get off topic, I'm sorry to interrupt, oh, but sure. I'm wondering because there's that imagery from the Happy Toys truck on the back. And now I'm like, oh, I see. Like, this is maybe the very first sort of variation of Pennywise that we're getting because there's that really <laughs> creepy Pennywise looking esque, which I have in my notes as that. Like, we get our best Pennywise illustration on the back of that truck. Mm. So. He already was kicking around this kind of creepy clown thing. Yeah, maybe it's like a Pixar thing where he's adding a little Easter egg for what's coming next. And I mean, he absolutely would have had that artistic opinion about what the truck looks like, right? He wouldn't have just been like, oh, put a clown on the back. Unless maybe if you believe the rumors, but we'll get to the rumor. Because this really becomes interesting with its extensive cast and crew. Outside of Emilio Estevez, you have Pat Hingle, who played Commissioner Gordon in the first few Batman movies. You have Yeardley Smith, who later went on to do the voice of Lisa Simpson. Frankie Faison, who did some horror movies like Chud and, oh, The Langoliers, but also one of my favorite movies, My Blueberry Nights, a movie we've talked about before, I Love Trouble, and also The Wire. J. John Ferguson, whose IMDb credits him as the MC in I Know What You Did Last Summer. I don't know what role that was or if he was just a voice, but he's in there somewhere. It probably was the talent show. Because, oh. you know, when they're introducing, like, Helen Shivers. Oh, sure. Last year's Croker Queen, Helen yeah. Shivers. That was probably him. Leon Rippey, who played the villain Kane in Cuffs. He's the guy who wears his own picture on his shirt. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, who became famous for, I mean, he was known beforehand, but he's in Breaking Bad. He has a non-speaking role as the guy in the arcade. Oh, I did not even recognize him. He, wow. It's it's hard to it's hard to catch that. And then interesting bit of trivia, since this movie is basically just a combination of stuff that Stephen King just liked, which is why ACDC does the whole soundtrack, he wanted Bruce Springsteen in the title role. Then in terms of the crew, uh, he had some people follow him through some other movie adaptations. His production designer, Giorgio Postlione, uh, worked on Silver Bullet, Firestarter, and Cat's Eye. His cinematographer, Armando Nanuzzi, also worked on Silver Bullet. And this is depressing. There was an accident on set in Maximum Overdrive where a shard of wood shot into the cinematographer's eye and he lost it. And he oh ended God. up suing uh, Stephen King for like $18 million. It was settled out of court. And then I guess going into some other neat trivia, this was the first movie made in Dino De Laurentiis's new production company. And if it wasn't for this film, there probably never would have been an Evil Dead 2 because Stephen King had been a big fan of the first Evil Dead and he had heard that they were having trouble raising money for a second one. So he personally told Dino to look into maybe funding this film. But then also what I kind of hinted at before, it is rumored that Stephen King buddy George Romero directed the majority of this film while Stephen King was in rehab for cocaine. It's not for certain, but... And now to get into the reviews... Uh, for Maximum Overdrive. So Stephen King, first, I guess, has gone on record. He hates the movie. But then our pal Leonard Malton, he rated it a bomb. The lowest (laughs) rating possible. He said, Customers and employees of Interstate Truck Stop are terrorized by the trucks themselves, which have come to demonic life. Novelist King, making his directing debut, said he set out to create a junk movie, nothing more. But he made it stupid and boring. (laughs) Oh, man. Lenny. And then... So I felt bad. I'm like, well, let's get a second opinion because that was harsh. Yeah. So I turned to the video movie guide and it gave it a turkey. Also, it's lowest review possible. Oh. Uh, it just had one line saying chaotic mess, loosely based on Stephen King's short story trucks. And I'm not really sure if people have come around on this movie more or if it's still kind of seen as just whatever. But I don't know. From the get go. I've always loved this movie, and rewatching it, I was a little worried about it, but God, this is fun. I'm curious to see what you have to say, but... Again, I don't want to get too out of myself, but all I kept thinking when I watched it at the end, and this is not a negative comment, is 
Michael Bay only wishes. <laughs> That's all I kept thinking. Well, anything else to say before we get into the summary? No, just that I seem to like this movie more than anyone on Earth. So let's get into it. Okay. So the film does open up with a shot of outer space. Then it slowly pans down, revealing a green mist hovering around Earth, which leads into the following text. On June 19th, 1987, at 9.47 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Earth passed into the extraordinarily diffused tale of Riem? I don't Rhea know. Riem? Yeah. Riem? They never really say it out loud, but Riem, a rogue comet. According to astronomical calculations, the planet would remain in the tail of the comet for the next eight days, five hours, 20 minutes, and 23 seconds. So that's just our little intro. After that text, we pivot to Wilmington, North Carolina, where the first of many odd occurrences begin. And man, oh man, does it start off with a bang. Uh, the first being an electronic sign. And it's funny because when I was watching this, so I did watch this with my husband because as Joe said off the top, my husband cited this as one of those movies he watched at a young age that really terrified him, but yet he couldn't remember a thing about it. Even mm. when we watched it, he's like, it doesn't seem familiar, but I know I've seen it. So as always, I love watching these movies with my husband because he has the greatest commentary. So they're at the bank. There's this electronic sign that displays the temperature and time. And then it immediately switches to the word, fuck you. And people are just walking by the bank and not paying any attention. And I... I missed it. I missed it first. And Adam's, <laughs> and Adam's like, he just made sort of like this noise. And I'm like, what? He's like, you didn't see that on the sign? I said, what? So I had to rewind it. And then I was like, oh my God, how did I miss that? These big words that just say, fuck you. I'm just like watching all the people going by the bank and I'm like waiting for something to happen. But if that wasn't good enough, then it cuts to this cameo, which is the only time we see Stephen King, but he is right off the bat. It's him going to withdraw money from an ATM and he inserts his card and the screen, instead of, you know, saying enter your pin or whatever, just all of a sudden reads, you are an asshole. And then the word asshole just keeps displaying over and over and over again as it's going down. And it's great because it's just this close up of his face and he's like, honey, this machine called me an asshole. It's just, ugh. <laughs> oh. So good. There's humor to it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. I think that's why I like it. Because it's not just some stupid killer machine movie. Like, there is some personality to some of it. So after we see the asshole scene, the first of many, as Joe said, ACDC songs kicks in as the title credits roll. And then there's various shots of this busy lift bridge that inevitably acts up and begins operating itself. And this causes a multi-car and truck collision that, in my opinion, best some of the inciting incidents from the Final Destination <laughs> films. Because and it goes on, it goes on so long. <laughs> like, it does, and so much. Bam! Disaster. Like, right off the bat, like I, I was like waiting, like so it's slowly moving up, and everyone's just kind of sitting, like, wait a minute, is this bridge going? What's going on? We we can't get off of it. And I think like one of the first things you see is like. I don't remember if it's a car backing up and hitting someone, but I swear like a woman goes flying through the windshield oh, or, yeah. or a body goes flying through the windshield. It's insane. There's so many visuals. Uh, there's this multi-car and truck collision where a motorcycle slides off the end of the bridge and the cyclist falls into the water. Cars slam into one another, including a van with the words ACDC painting or painted yeah. right on the side, just in case you didn't catch that. Bodies flying everywhere. The back wheels of a semi fall off and like blow through someone's car. Oh, and then my favorite, one of my favorites is there's a truck, a flatbed truck with a bunch of watermelons in the back, just like not necessary, but like we're getting watermelons like smashing through cars, splattering on the screens like POV. And in fact, there were moments where I'm like, I wonder if they wanted this to be in 3D. I did want to point out something that I'd never caught before, but that motorcyclist that slides off the bridge, he's one of the first to go. So he falls off and he's kind of, he's seated, but he's dropping down on all these grates that are on the bridge. So when he flies off the bridge into the water. If you pause it, you can see the seat of his pants is completely torn off and there's blood. So, Oh it's my like, God, I missed that. It's horrible. It's like, oh geez, they thought of everything in this movie. <laughs> that is exactly right. Like it's those things like you blink and you miss it moments. And like Stephen King is not afraid to go there, which we will see in a, some upcoming scenes. So yes, it's complete and utter 
pure chaos on this bridge. And while all this is happening, uh, we cut to the Dixie Boy truck stop. We immediately see the film's iconic Happy Toys truck pull up. And that's the truck that kind of haunts my husband's dreams, where the hood, basically mounted to the front of it, is this giant plastic green goblin face. And one of the reasons I wanted to pick this film too is because I've never dug into... So I always wonder, like, why did he have a Spider-Man villain on the front of this truck? Like, how did that happen? And there's not really any explanation. They did get Marvel's permission. They're in the end credits. But the best anyone seems to be able to tell is that it's that thing where Stephen King just wanted to put things in that he enjoyed, like Bruce Springsteen and ACDC. So like, well, it's not too far-fetched to think that he was a fan of the Spider-Man comics at the time. So maybe that's why. Don't really know. Never explained. Yeah, I've always wondered. I, I always assumed there was a reason. It's not a... A subtle, tiny thing. It's like the no. entire front part of yeah, the truck. Yeah, and this is the main villain of the movie. It's always there. So Yes. And well, and as I mentioned off the top, too, the back of the truck has a painted clown that I think looks just like Pennywise. I mean, it's mm. not Pennywise because obviously that book hasn't come out, but it's very menacing looking because it's mm. laughing, but it looks kind of like it's cackling. I don't know. The, the driver of this... Happy Toys truck is Handy, who we meet. He goes in to sit at the counter while he's the truck's getting fueled up and converses with waitress Wanda June. And then we immediately meet protagonist Bill, played by Estevez, Emilio Estevez, cooking up breakfast in the kitchen. And he's called into his boss, Bubba Hendershot's office, to discuss his time card. And this is kind of another really like minor fucked up thing. The boss brings him in the office and reveals that Bill is a paroled ex-convict and essentially blackmails him into working longer hours but getting paid for less. And he says, all I have to do is just report you for doing something and you're going to go back to jail. And he basically points out that if you look at the time card, he says, you know, that's what that little star on his time card, because you see it, it's like a back in the day, they're punching them in. There's like a stick, star sticker or something on it that indicates that he's a convict. And when he's going back to his time card, you see other little stickers on a bunch of other people's cards, which makes me wonder if then he's essentially Bubba scamming most, if not all the employees yeah, that's yeah, that's the impression I got. Is that the okay? He, he employs convicts and then takes advantage of them not being able to do anything really. So, well, because I was kind of wondering if Wanda was one too, because there's a scene later which skeeved me out at first. It's it's after the power is cut off and everybody's kind of running out to see like what happened, and you see Bubba come in and he's like zipping up his fly, and then Wanda comes in and is buttoning up her top. Part of me was like wondering also if he's kind of blackmailing her into sex. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess that's the impression that I got. He's a pretty despicable character, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, oh, if you want to keep your job and I don't report you, you're going to do these terrible things. So he goes through that whole little meeting with Bubba, and then he's, you know, of course, super pissed, Bill. But after that, um, we see attendant Duncan Keller fueling up Handy's truck, and why he does this Don't ask me, but the pump stops. And so he starts to get really on the nose, like investigate the hose. Like he's banging it with his hand and shaking it and then looks directly down the barrel of the pump and everybody knows what's coming. It immediately like squirts gas in his face and starts fucking up his eyes. So with Bill preoccupied, we then cut to uh, Wanda's attempting to take over the griddle because she's getting overwhelmed with everyone out on the floor. And so she's trying to make breakfast and an electric knife comes to life and slices it into her arm. And man, that was another brutal one. It like slices pretty gnarly into her arm. Yeah, it's horrifying. This is the one, like when I saw this as a kid, like this is the horrific moment that stuck with me. Just And like always being afraid of electric appliances plugged in. <laughs> Because then if they kind of flip it on the floor, but then it's still going and like trying to cut into her foot or it does cut into her it foot. It does. Too. Yeah. Like, oh, I was going to say, it doesn't stop there. It's not just her arm. She's like, fuck you. And like bangs it on the floor. And then it just like goes right into her foot. And, yeah. just, and luckily we get Bill coming in to save the day and he smashes the hell out of it with a hammer. And then um, we get another sequence 
at the simultaneously essentially in the diner's game room and this is where that cameo is coming in like you were saying earlier yeah, I didn't Carlo even, Esposito I did not even recognize him he but, does not look very familiar so but I did love this because he's standing in this this game room and all the machines are acting up pinball machines cigarette machines are spitting out cigarettes and the coins are spitting out coins and all this stuff all he says he doesn't really say any lines but he just says yo mama before <laughs> You know, all this stuff starts spitting stuff out. And then he starts, you know, of course, taking advantage of it. He's like, oh, cigarettes. So he's shoving his whole entire shirt full of cigarettes and coins and is immediately drawn to some arcade game that's acting up. And he walks up to it and puts his hands kind of like near the controllers and immediately is electrocuted. And so that incites sort of the scream, which draws Bill and everyone in the diner into the game room. And they realize, you know, what's going on, that the machines are going nuts and that this poor man is now electrocuted and dead. One of my favorite storylines to be honest, is the next one that we get, which is the end of a Little League game. So, you know, they all are cheering and the coach offers to buy his team a round of sodas. And when he goes to the soda machine, cans immediately start shooting out of the machine and it hits him like once in the nuts, which is like, you know, ha ha ha, like, oh, it hit him in the balls and everyone's laughing. But then the next one nails him directly in the forehead. And I was like, oh, well, that sucks. That must have hurt really bad. But he goes down and then we eventually see like this really insane round imprinted red mark on his forehead, basically saying, yep, he's dead. Like that (laughs) hit him straight in the forehead and completely killed him, which I was not expecting. So I was already like thrown off by that, like, damn. And then it immediately starts shooting all the other kids and they're like running for dear life. But if that wasn't bad enough, it literally hits some of the kids and they go down and you just see them laying on the ground. And again, I think it's implied like they're dead. They're not just like knocked out. They're dead. Like it literally hit them and killed them. So I was like, holy shit. So we get the main player, Deke, who's the son of Duncan, the guy that got gas in his eye. As he's watching in horror, as these cans are taking out the coach, other kids on the team. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse or crazier, a driverless steamroller bursts on the field and takes out one of Deke's teammates. Like it is chasing someone on a bike. The kid eats the dirt and the steamroller goes right over his body, which I, after that point, I was like, I am not ready for this. And that was the moment where my husband was really like, oh God, this is terrifying. So anyway, after the steamroller, Deke obviously is like, I am getting the fuck out of here. And so he hops on his bike, beelines out of there and escapes. And the next sequence that we get is we meet Grifter Brett, this sexy grifter in her mm-hmm. cool, like androgynous look. Cause I definitely, that was the first thing I said to my husband is I was just like, I would wear that. Cause she's got this little fedora on and like the big 80s shoulder blade blazer, you know, with the jeans. So we meet her. She's riding shotgun with this Bible salesman, Camp Loman. And Camp continuously sexually harasses her as they're listening to a radio warning them to avoid major highways. So naturally they're distracted. I mean, she's she's kind of listening. Camp is just all about trying to sexually harass her. And I love it because immediately Brett just tells him to take his hand off her leg unless he wants to wipe his ass with a hook the next time he takes a dump. So Camp pulls over to the Dixie Boy, the two scuffle in the parking lot. And while they fight, the Happy Toys truck with the green goblin face starts up, tries to run them over, and it's revealed that it started by itself and everybody's kind of taken aback by that. So the last two characters that we really get to know and, and or care about are newlyweds Curtis and Connie, a.k.a. Lisa Simpson, who stop at a gas station to find an attendant. And this was another really good effective scene, I thought. But they stop at a gas station and they notice kind of around the corner that someone's laying on the ground. And as they get closer, they realize that it's this man whose like head is bashed into a wall. And so it's pretty terrifying. And Connie immediately becomes one of the most irritating characters of the yes. film. I don't know how you <laughs> felt, Joe, but... And yeah, she's kind of that high-pitched scream voice. So. Screaming a lot, yelling, nagging her husband. And in yeah. fact, my husband at the end of it was just like, run her over, like as the trucks <laughs> were coming to life because he's like so sick of her just screaming and nagging at her husband. But um, they're immediately attacked by, in my opinion, look like Mater from Cars. Yeah. Like one of those um, service trucks but managed to dodge the rabbit truck before it smashes into the wall. And when the truck tries to restart, they get the hell out of there. So after that's all done, we cut back to Deke, 
who's making his way through town on his bike. And this is another great effective scene. He's just slowly riding through town and it's like every single person that he passes by is dead. And so we get some pretty great shots of just the insanity. One being a bloody Walkman next to a body, a pizza delivery driver crashed into a tree. There's a toy car that's like in a bloody dog's mouth yeah. at some point. <laughs> With this so lights, lights on and it's slamming into the dog's mouth. There's a, oh, and then this is one of my favorites. There was a cord from a blow dryer wrapped around a woman's neck. So as he's kind of going through town, we hear a news voiceover tell us to avoid all electronic devices and that machines are starting to take over. So Deke then spots, oh, so this is my, this is my husband's number one, actually most terrified moment. And it's, so Deke's going down the street and we hear an ice cream truck in the distance. And then as it's coming towards us it was great like it was yeah. just like a driverless ice cream truck just kind of circling the neighborhood and, and there's course, blood on the front of it yeah so. it's insane and it, it really is one of those effective things like you, you think about it like kids hear the ice cream truck and they're like oh ice cream and then yeah so he did not like that but luckily deke that was better and saw it coming and was hiding in the bushes. But as he's hiding, there's a nearby bloody like lawnmower. Super bloody lawnmower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that starts up and starts chasing him. And so, of course, Zeke gets on his bike and outruns it and gets away. But another terrifying moment. And that's yeah. why I think I love this storyline is because it's just like this poor kid is just yeah. terrorized one thing after another. I don't think he ever gets a break. So we cut back to the diner and the blinded Duncan, Deke's dad, attempts to leave to find his son. But as he's trying to leave, one of the semis plows into Deke and kills him and then dumps all its garbage on top of Camp's car. So Camp exits the diner and starts cussing out the truck. And unbeknownst to him, the Happy Toys truck starts backing up and eventually just sends Camp into a nearby ditch. Yeah, it just it slams into him and he goes Slams flying. into him. This might be a good time to point out since you talked about Camp's car getting trash dumped on it. Normal automobiles are not being taken control of and becoming killers in this movie. I mean, it's not really a big thing, but it's like, oh yeah, those things are just fine. I never universe. even thought about that. I'm glad you clocked that. Of all the things that are coming to life, like I... Yeah, I didn't even want to think about why were the cars allowing them to drive all the way there. But after camp goes flying into the ditch, that's when all of a sudden everyone inside sees as more and more semis arrive. And then there's just sort of this horrific, like, circling the waters moment. It was very, like, Jaws, like, circling its prey. All these trucks, they start circling the diner. And I think they're even, like, honking their horns and pretty much scaring the shit out of everyone. Yeah. So back on the highway, we cut back to Connie and Curtis, who are chased by a Mack truck. And Connie, this I love this. Connie is like, Curtis, what's going on? And I love his response. He just says, I don't know. Like he just yells it back at her, like, shut the fuck up. But they do manage to run that Mack truck off the road and then spot a sign for the Dixie boy. So they arrive at the diner. Watch from a safe distance as the trucks are now circling the diner. And Curtis decides to make a run for it, which, you know, they kind of make it at this point. Because yeah. he he hauls ass. He gets in between some of the trucks, but one of them does end up clipping the back of it, flipping the car. And thankfully, Bill and Brett, the kind hearts that they are, rush out to help them. Because also there's a thing where I, I honestly thought Connie was toast. Because she gets like caught in the car, oh, in the right. seatbelt, she can't get out, and there's this whole thing. And I mean, that would have honestly been like the perfect opportunity for them to just barrel over the car and blow <laughs> yeah. her up. I mean, no offense yeah. to that actress, I, I thought she did a really good job, but the Connie character is pretty grating. So it is what it is, but they yeah. do end up making it out. Without, you know, of course, one of the trucks tries to run them down, but oh, that's, that's the new thing that all of a sudden out of nowhere, again, like just when you thought the movie couldn't top itself, they're running back into the diner and they're getting chased by this truck and then Bubba appears with a rocket launcher and just blows the truck up which 100% did not see that coming. Yeah. He just has it. And no one comments on it for a little while, too. No. And that's the other thing that I was going to say is that's why I just kept thinking Michael Bay wishes because this is yeah. definitely like, you know, I feel like sometimes he's trying to do like high art action and this, it's very just like, what do we need? Ah, fuck it. Let's just pull out a <laughs> rocket launcher and blow this shit up. So uh, after the truck blows up, there's this, 
extremely awkward scene in the men's room. Now, I don't know how you felt about it, but Bill's in there talking to one of the you know mechanics about Bubba's artillery room because he knows that he's got shit, clearly, because he's got this rocket launcher. But while he's talking to this man, like Bill's just in front of the mirror washing his hands or whatever, checking himself out. And the guy he's talking to is taking a shit. But like... You hear him taking it, like, repeatedly. <laughs> it's all these, like, foleyed in fart noises for, like, the whole scene. Yeah, it's... and the, like, kerplunks and the, all of that. Like, it's it's very... I just... I was like, why? Like, why do we need this? Well, regardless, it just serves a purpose so Bill can learn about the artillery room, which is in the basement, I think, of the diner. And Bill and Brett go down there to check it out. And Bubba confronts them, and that's where he exposition dumps Bill's history as an ex-con to Brett. But while Bill is embarrassed, lucky for him, Brett does not give a shit in the slightest. She's Mm-mm. just like, all right, whatever. So she's pretty forthright right off the bat because she, I think, even says when they first meet, like, you're lucky you're so cute or something oh, yeah. like that. And I was like, <laughs> well, damn, like, she just went for it. So good for her. I mean, I can't blame her. So there's the awkward exchange in the basement. And then we cut back to poor Deke finally arriving at the diner. And he spots the trucks because he's across the street um, watching them circle. And he tries to access the diner through a drain pipe that's leading under the road to the other side of the road. But essentially, there's like this metal mesh grate covering it. And he's trying to pull it away, but he just can't get it. So it cuts back to the artillery room. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Brett and Bill are now postcoital. Like at some point, they just did it in this bed yeah, in that like, room. I was wondering, like, this is a weird setup like to have a bed in here. <laughs> Yeah, like I can 100% believe it's there, but like, would you want to be on those sheets if that was their bosses? Because it's his room, right? Like no one else is sleeping there. Because I know truck stops have showers and stuff, but they don't have beds, do they? Yeah, no, this is definitely one of like in the staff area, so. Okay, so anyway, they're just, you know, being romantico down in the basement and they're looking out a window at the green glow that's in the sky and Brett is convinced that everything is the comet's fault and all they have to do is stay alive for the next seven days. So Bill tells Brett about a place called Haven that is an island six miles off the coast that is free from all electronics and motor vehicles. So later, power is cut off from the diner and that's that scene I was talking about earlier where the boss comes out and Wanda's buttoning up her top and it's super awkward. But everyone suddenly realizes that camp is still alive because they can hear him screaming in agony all of a sudden. Like he must have just woke up in the dark from the ditch. And Bill and Curtis, the nice guys they are, devise a plan to rescue him via the sewers. So while they make their way there, we cut back to Deke, who does stumble across camp, who asks for his help. And Deke flat out says, like, you're too heavy. There's no way. I'm this kid, and I'm not going to drag this older man, like, all the way over there and not get murdered. But in a creepy twist, camp grabs onto him, does not let go, and he's like, says in this really creepy voice, like, if you don't help me, I'm going to kill you. I'm pretty sure it's something like that, which is, he says it like over and over again, and I'm pretty sure that would be another moment that probably was ingrained in my husband's mind because the thought of this creepy old man grabbing onto this boy and yelling, I'm going to kill you. It kind of reminds me, even though it's not Stephen King related, that, hey lady, can I get a ride from Creepshow 2? Oh, right. It's this creepy, you know, voice. So luckily, Bill and Curtis arrive to help Deke out because at this point, he's pinned. He's, you know, Camp's died, but gripped onto him and he can't get away from him. So Bill and Curtis help him out and bring him back to the diner where Deke inevitably learns that his dad died. So we cut to the next morning. And then again, this is another incident where just when you think it can't top itself, it just keeps going because it's the morning and a bulldozer and a military mule with an M60 machine gun attached arrive to the diner. The bulldozer pushes Camp's Cadillac into the diner, basically destroying one of the walls, creating a big opening. And then it allows the military mule to shoot off around at everyone inside. And at first it was like, oh, okay, everyone had the sense to duck. But then not at all. Because I think Baba is like, fuck you. I think he grabs the rocket launcher, shoots it, and blows up the bulldozer, but doesn't realize that the military vehicle is right behind it with a gun. And it just totally opens fire and takes out Bubba first, and then a bunch of people inside who are still just literally standing. And it goes on for a really long time. But this instantly causes Wanda June to snap. 
And so she grabs the rocket launcher and she exits the diner with the rocket launcher because this was a scene earlier that it didn't include. But throughout the film, she's repeatedly like losing her mind saying, no, we made you. We made these things. It's not right. So she yells out there, we made you before getting completely gunned down. And then it accidentally, she accidentally fires the rocket launcher, blowing up a basically a nearby Miller truck. So again, it's like a one-two punch of like a lot happening. It's like bulldozer, car, wall, rocket launcher, M60 gun, like machine gun, and then all the people dying, and then Wanda getting gunned down, and then a rocket launcher again, blowing up a Miller truck. It's just nonstop. So Anyway, the military mule begins honking its horn excessively, and Deke instantly recognizes that it's Morse code and starts translating. And the truck offers basically essentially a temporary truce so long as they agree to refuel the rest of the vehicles on site. So Bill and the crew agree. They took turns filling up each truck. And more and more vehicles start arriving to be refueled. And this is a really interesting scene, too, just because... The fact that they are doing a truce, it's just really weird. Like, they're just at some point walking around the parking lot and nothing's happening and they're not trying to run them over. I don't know. Like, I would still be pretty terrified. I think it only really shows in the daytime, but it seems like multiple days because these people are getting exhausted of pumping gas in this hot sun. So I don't know if it's supposed to take place over a couple of days. Inevitably, they end up running out of gas. And so they got to come up with a plan, which... Thankfully, Handy, the driver of the toy truck, devises a plan to use the block sewer pipe that Deke couldn't access to escape the diner. And so while Curtis and Handy lead the others through the pipe and kind of break down the metal mesh on the other side, Bill distracts the mule and ends up batting the gun so it spins in a circle and is just shooting blindly and it allows them to kind of duck while also simultaneously planting a grenade on it. He ends up blowing up the military truck and that causes essentially all of the trucks surrounding the diner to go completely and absolutely apeshit. So while they're doing all that, like Bill and the rest of the crew like end up escaping through the sewer pipe and the trucks start driving through the diner, nearly destroying it. And then there's a liquid nitrogen truck that inevitably catches fire and blows the entire place up. So, But they're across the street by that point. So, Yep, they're watching it completely crumble and be demolished. And, you know, after that point, most everything blows up and we're just assumed that all the trucks are done and they're gone because nothing's chasing them and they're kind of on the way to the marina because they're following Bill's plan to go to that island. And as they're escaping to the marina, they pass a fast food restaurant. This is another great scene. They pass by this fast food restaurant and there's the little light up board where you order that essentially starts yelling, humans here, humans here, and a gun-toting Deke, who, how old would you say Deke is? 12? 12, yeah, probably around 12. I mean, he's young, but he's like holding this big ass gun and he he stands up in front of this menu board and says this is for my dad you loudmouth son of a bitch before completely destroying it and then they have this moment where he's like i don't need this anymore and so i feel like that's a good way of being like see don't play with guns kids (laughs) (laughs) so anyway they eventually make it to the docks they start boarding a boat and then I, i looked up the name i don't really feel like We know much about this character. He's kind of just a throwaway character. But there's this character named Brad who breaks away from the group. And he notices there's this like older woman with half her body halfway out of a car. And she's got this big rock on her finger. But I love it because, again, it's implied that the automatic window to the car rolled up and totally killed her that way. So as he's doing that, he takes the rock off her body and the old familiar Happy Toys trucks appears behind him, turns its lights on, mows him down. And it's funny because I just had to point out one more thing. We were watching this. And again, my husband was just like, oh, did that truck just manage to sneak up on him? Like not make any noise? Like it was just sitting there. Going like three miles an hour. Completely silent. Like, yeah. yeah. It's just hilarious, but it is what it is. So after, you know, the truck mows down Brad, Bill appears, fires the rocket launcher one last time and yells, adios, motherfucker, destroying the truck and allowing everyone to escape. They get on the boat, they sail away, and then the final text reads, two days after a large UFO was destroyed in space by a Russian weather satellite, in quotes, which happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and class four nuclear missiles. Approximately six days later, the Earth passed beyond the tail of Rhea M, exactly as predicted. The survivors of the Dixie Boy are still survivors. 
And then it cuts to You Shook Me All Night Long, closing on the film as the credits roll. Admittedly, I love this movie, but this is dumb. I feel like if there's something that sours people, I can see this being like you get to the end and then you get a text screen that really like has nothing to do with what we've been seeing. Sure, the comet tale, but then it gives you this extra information. It's like, what? This is not what I cared about at all. Yeah. So it is an awkward way to end the movie. Just put the text of the survivors of the Dixie Boy are still survivors. Like, just do that. Or just them lip syncing to You Shook Me All Night Long while they're on the <laughs> boat. Just one at a time. It just cuts to every single one of them. Oh, it'd be great. And then they get close to the island and there's all these cars waiting for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Revving their engines. It's just the trucks well, because the horns. The, the end of the short story that this is based on ends with them... Like the characters are looking up and they see a plane go by. It's like, yeah, that's probably doesn't have people in it. So it's mm. like a real downer. Like, oh, I guess the question everyone's dying to know then, Joe, you did say you liked it, but does it hold up in your eyes? It does. Like there's so much weird stuff going on in this movie. You're never too far away from something new crazy happening. So what, what did you think? And also, how did this hold up for your husband? So I, I liked it a lot. It's weird because... I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but to me, it definitely felt like something that I may have seen parts of as a child, but it blends together with other things. Mm. Have you ever done that before where you have memories where you like know parts of it, but you're blending it with another film? So it's not the full movie you are imagining in your head. It's just pieces. Well, I had to do some research because there's very distinct scenes that play out in my mind that I for some reason, kept associating to this film. And what I realized in researching is that there's a movie that came out in 1988 called Pulse. Oh, which yeah. is similar to this, but it's not the same. And I very distinctly remember those sort of inanimate object type things happening again, just like this movie. Yeah, because it's more like this new fancy computer chip is put into this house to run everything, but things go wrong. And so it's like, it's kind of like a haunted house thing, but it's more the appliances coming to life. Yeah. And I think that's where I was mixing it up. And in fact, I even incorporated one other thing that I was like, I remember there being a family trapped in a garage and all this stuff going on. And then I realized, oh, that's Poltergeist too. Because oh. <laughs> they're trying to escape and they're in their car and the garage is going haywire oh, yeah. and there's a chainsaw that comes to life. And it's just insane. I think there's electricity shooting and all of that. The dog grabs one of the wires and it's insane. So for some reason, my brain just really wrapped all this together, even though I definitely did not remember anything from this movie. Mm. I'll get into it, but one of my husband and I's favorite horror films that we really like that is also Stephen King related is The Mist. And it felt really like that. I know The Mist, the adaptation came out way after this, but you can see those parallels with Stephen King is what I'm making a point of is he does a really good job of dealing with groups of people in crisis. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a recurring theme of just like, and also them being kind of this everyday blue collar people as well, which I think horror or not, I think he writes blue collar America better than anybody. So, and which I think really adds a lot of depth to his character work in his stories. It's not just, you know, scares. So exactly. Well, so my husband did like it. He thought it was also crazy bananas most of the time, but he was really engrossed in it. I mean, he was just, he too couldn't remember. He was like, I can, I'm placing this. I remember things. Like I told you, like the ice cream truck, maybe I think the lawnmower, the baseball scene, like a lot of that stuff. But he too, we were talking about it and I did a little research because you had mentioned this to me before about how it could possibly be mixing up with another film. He fully admitted after we watched the trailer for the 1970s, I don't remember the exact year, film Duel. Oh, right. Yeah. Steven Spielberg's TV movie. Yeah. That he may be intertwining both of these because mm. the, the theme of like a killer truck definitely sticks out in his brain, but he was having a hard time placing. Is this the same movie or is this yeah. both in different capacities? But overall, no, he really enjoyed it. I can't say I would probably get him to watch it again. Although I take it back because he loves shit that blows up all the time and <laughs> see, sort of these apocalyptic movies. And so I'm glad that he was able to overcome his uh, childhood fears and that it didn't re-traumatize him. So that wraps up Maximum Overdrive. Yeah. So Josh, we just have one week left in October. So what is your final Halloween Horror Fest pick? 
So you and I were doing a really good job of kind of mirroring each other. So our first round was something that neither of us had seen. Now this time, something that you have seen, but I hadn't. So I was kind of grilling you a few weeks ago to try to see what movies you hadn't seen. And for a very long time, I was going to pick Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, because I really, really like that. And I think it's a lot of fun. But I decided to go with Idle Hands. Oh, nice. Because you said you haven't seen it. This is one of the films that I haven't seen off your 100 favorite horror. So, And it's... Unlike anything I can ever really explain. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic horror comedy. I remember this coming out, and I avoided it because at the time, I was like, oh, it's just like a stoner comedy that was horror, whatever. It looks bad. Well, I'm exactly the same way. Like, the marketing was horrible because it does, like, basically market it as, you know, stoner horror comedy. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I don't even feel like I remember it being marketed as, like, horror. I feel like it was just straight up stoner film. And then it wasn't until I watched it on VHS that I remember thinking, dear God, like the opening sequence in particular, I'm so excited for you to see because I love films that kind of do a lot with a little. Sure. And so the opening kill is great because it's one of those things that, no spoilers, leaves it up to your imagination. Yeah, it's nice to have a reason to go back and check out what I missed. At the very least, they definitely have a Halloween dance in the film. So it's it's festive. It's a festive film in that way. I do feel like, I wouldn't call it a Halloween film, but a big portion of the plot surrounds like Halloween and people dressed in costumes and all that. So at the very least, it's a great, perfect film to end for our weekly October picks. Great. Yeah, I had wondered if uh, you would maybe choose this or the Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Because I know I, those were two I hadn't seen on your list. Yeah, see, and I, I would love to watch that again. I think it's just, it's hard for me to pick it when you know that one of the podcasts I really, really enjoy recently covered it. And I just, mm, when, I, yeah. when I hear someone else cover a film on a podcast, at least current, like pretty recently, it's hard for me to get out of that mind space that I'm, you or I are going to contribute anything better right. than what yeah. other people can. And you and I have also talked, you know, another top contender for me, honestly, was the film Hellbent because we were um, talking about that. And I actually just acquired that finally on DVD because it's been long out of print and isn't easy to find. But it's something that I should have in my horror collection because I am a queer horror fan. So, I mean, I'm not just saying because that's the only reason. It's a pretty fun movie and you've seen that one before. And so, yeah, I worked worked at the movie theater when that was playing Yeah, that's why I figured, you know, we can save that for a rainy day. Um, Well, if everyone likes what you heard this week, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For upcoming release info and other social media updates, check out at Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram or at Video Dropbox on Twitter. You can also reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, remember to be kind and please rewind.